Turn your Bibles to Mark chapter 14. We're going to be reading verses 32 through 52. Prepare your hearts to worship God through reading his perfect truths back to him. Mark 14, 32 through 52. And they went to a place called Gethsemane, and he said to his disciples, Sit here while I pray. And he took with him Peter and James and John and began to be greatly distressed and troubled. And he said to them, My soul is very sorrowful, even to death. Remain here and watch. And going a little farther, he fell on the ground and prayed that, if it were possible, the hour might pass from him. And he said, Abba, Father, all things are possible for you. Remove this cup from me. Yet not what I will, but what you will. And he came and found them sleeping, and he said to Peter, Simon, are you asleep? Could you not watch one hour? Watch and pray that you may not enter into temptation. The spirit indeed is willing, but the flesh is weak. And again he went away and prayed, saying the same words. And again he came out and found them sleeping, for their eyes were very heavy, and they did not know what to answer him. And he came to the, to the third time and said to them, Are you still sleeping and taking your rest? It is enough. The hour has come. The Son of Man is betrayed into the hands of sinners. Rise, let us be going. See, my betrayer is at hand. And immediately, while he was still speaking, Judas came, one of the twelve, and with him a crowd with swords and clubs from the chief priests and the scribes and the elders. Now the betrayer had given them a sign saying, The one I will kiss is the man. Seize him and lead him away under guard. And when he came, he went up to him at once and said, Rabbi, and he kissed him. And they laid hands on him and seized him. But one of those who stood by drew his sword and struck the servant of the high priest and cut off his ear. And Jesus said to them, Have you come out against a robber with swords and clubs to capture me? Day after day, I was with you in the temple teaching, and you did not seize me, but let the scriptures be fulfilled. And they all left him and fled. And a young man followed him with nothing but a linen cloth about his body, and they seized him, but he left the linen cloth and ran away naked. Amen. May God bless the reading of his words to your hearts. You may be seated. Iacta alea est. That is a Latin phrase that was authored by a Roman historian known as Suetonius. It was chosen to describe the decision that was made by Julius Caesar and the armies that were with him to cross the Rubicon to initiate a civil war. You are perhaps... um, more acquainted with the English translation, which is, the die is cast. And while there, sure, uh, while there was sure to be you know, lots of political maneuvering that had taken place prior to this, you know, public declarations, I'm confident, were made and other forms of saber rattling that led up to that decision, the crossing of the river by Julius Caesar was recognized as an irreversible action. This was the point of no return. 
And likewise, in this account that we're looking at today, that starts at uh, verse 43, we're going to become familiar with events that serve as a tangible point from which there was absolutely no return. At this point in the story, in the narrative, the Last Supper is complete. Jesus' request to the Father three times, asking if there's any way to accomplish the mission uh, you know, in a different way, that this hour might pass, has been denied. And so now what we have is that the betrayal has come, become, excuse me, the trail has begun in earnest. His humiliation has begun in earnest. The desertion of his closest confidants has, become, has begun in earnest, and in short, the passion of Christ has now begun in earnest. We see that the narrative that begins right here in verse 43 overlaps with what had taken place prior, which is why I asked PJ to, to read the verses, that account that was taking place just before that, because it's actually as Jesus was telling his disciples that it was time to be going, he said that, they, that he was going to be betrayed into the hands of sinners and that there's no more time for prayer, no more requests to be made. It's time to be going because he's coming right now. And as the words are still in his mouth, describing this to his own apostles, that's exactly when Judas arrives. It says, and immediately while he was still speaking, Judas came. And we see that Judas, in doing this, and in this description that Mark's give, Mark gives us about him immediately arriving, that Judas is the one that's now front and center. He's taken center stage. The spotlight is trained directly on Judas. This is unmistakably his moment. The die absolutely has been cast. This is his unambiguous crossing of the Rubicon. And just as a reminder as well, at this point in, in the account, you know, this is the middle of the night. Uh, but earlier in the day, Jesus had hosted a Passover meal. That was the Last Supper. And you'll remember that during that meal, the, uh, we read that the devil had put it into the heart of Judas to betray Jesus. Actually, just prior to the meal, the devil had put it into the heart of Judas to betray Jesus. As the day progressed, and then once they began the meal, then Jesus took a piece of bread, he dipped it into the bowl, he gave it to Judas, and then it reads, Judas took the morsel, and Satan entered him. Then Judas left them all quickly, and you remember what it is that he did. He, he left the other apostles, he left Jesus, went straight to the chief priests and to the officers to determine how he might betray Jesus. And as condemnable as all of these things are, they're horrible things that have taken place, all of them are still preparatory in nature. They're all precursors to what is about to take place. We read in James chapter 1, verses 14 and 15, but each person is tempted when he is lured and enticed by his own desire. Then desire, when it has conceived, gives birth to sin, and sin, when it is fully grown, brings forth death. 
So here's Judas, finds himself faced with temptation. What was once dormant or at a minimum, uh, you know, suppressed in the heart of Judas Iscariot has now absolutely come to life. You guys know that I've been uh, helping with, with wildfires. The team that, I, that I'm on have, has a lot of specialized positions assigned to it. I mean, our team has its own incident meteorologist. Um, it has its own person that's dedicated just to see what the effects of smoke are going to be on the community. Well, one of the unique positions on, uh, on the team as well is something that's, uh, that we call an F-band. They're a fire behavior analyst. And they come and they report every day on what they anticipate the fire is going to do, um, given the, uh, the terrain and given the weather and all these other factors that take place. But one of the things every day that this fire behavior analyst reports out on is a thing called a PIG. And that stands for probability of ignition. And every day they explain it to people that what that is like is if you were to take 100 matches and to light a match and drop it into what's called a receptive fuel bed, how many of those matches are going to start a fire? And that is your probability. Out of 100, if 80 of them would likely start a fire, then it's 80%. And I would say uh, that in this particular instance, and as, a reply, uh, as it, as it um, relates to what we're looking at here today, Judas could not, we're looking at a 100% receptive fuel bed. The match of temptation was dropped and being lured and enticed by his own desire, it gave birth to sin and that sin absolutely gave birth to death. Besides telling us that Judas came immediately, this is fascinating to me that Mark takes pains to actually note that he's one of the twelve. And immediately while still speaking, Judas came one of the 12. If you're, if you're reading this account, there cannot be any question in your mind who it is that Mark is talking about, and yet he takes the pains to go ahead and explain that he is one of the 12. I'm, it, it's amazing to me that, you know, that what it is that Scripture does to reveal that it is both inerrant and infallible, you know, historic, orthodox, Genuine Christianity acknowledges that the Bible is inerrant and infallible. And among the many ways that we know that is because Scripture doesn't hide the ugly truths as well. The warts of the many characters that we see in Scripture. And never could it be worse, never could it be more ugly than the fact that one of the twelve is the one that is going to betray Jesus this entire thing that's taking place is being perpetrated by one of Jesus's own. It's taking place by one of the 12. But besides the transparency that Mark's account provides just about Judas's identity to make sure that we know exactly who it is, it's a reminder that he, that Judas himself, as one of the 12, had a front row seat to the ministry of Jesus. It, it's hard to even reconcile that, that he witnessed the miracles that are testifying to the divinity of Jesus, that are the signs, not just to give people a better life 
He didn't just take away illness. He didn't give the people their hearing back and their sight back just so that they would live a more complete life. He did those things because they are pointing back to him to reveal that he is the very son of God, that he is God incarnate. Judas would have been there when Jesus is exercising his authority over demons. He would have heard the word of God preached by Logos, the word of God. It, that, that is just unbelievable that he would be that close. And I think sometimes we have this, this uh, romantic view that, you know, if only we were right there. You know, it's so much harder now, but if I would have been right there in the presence of Jesus, it would be better or it would be easier. Well, we see right here that that clearly is not the case. That in Judas's case, as I think would apply to most anyone else without the grace of God, he was blinded by his own sin. It didn't matter that he watched these miracles take place. It didn't matter that he watched demons be cast out of those that were afflicted. And then we see on the heels of that, that it's a crowd that has taken up arms. And this is what's fascinating as well, is that notice that this crowd is with Judas. Judas, remember earlier, was the one that approached after the, uh, during the Passover. He leaves quickly. He's the one that goes to the chief priests and the officers. And now that Judas returns to betray him, it's actually the crowd that's with Judas. Judas is absolutely leading them in this effort. He's executing his plan. The crowd was armed with swords and clubs, and certainly they were commissioned by the chief priests, the scribes, and the elders, but it's with Judas that they've come. And in verse 44, we see that Mark transitions from using his name, that being Judas, to calling him the betrayer. a more appropriate designation to be sure. But this man continues to occupy the center stage as it is the betrayer that had even even determined what the sign of the betrayal was going to be. I don't know if you've ever, you know, these are the funny things that roll around in my head, and I don't know if if these are things that you think about, but it's like, why why did he need a signal? I mean, he's there, he's with a crowd. You know, what's the deal? with the signal. And I think this is all part of uh, what's going on in Judas's head about the way that he thinks things are going to play out. But just remember that logistically that this is all taking place during the Passover, which means that there are many, many Jews that are making a pilgrimage to Israel to be able to celebrate the Passover. So now this is the middle of the night. They, while the they, requirements of the Passover are that they celebrate that inside the, uh, the confines of the city of Jerusalem, afterward they would be basically camping. So basically you have campers littered across the countryside in the area. And add to that the fact that it's very dark. Judas is thinking through all of these details. He has this crowd coming with him, and he's already come up with a plan to make sure that no mistake is made and that Jesus, for sure, is going to be taken into custody. 
He wanted to make sure not only that they identified who he was, he even goes to the length of saying, this is how we're going to do it so that, I can, so that I can assure that he's actually going to be seized, that he's going to be arrested. He gives them very clear direction in verse 44. Now the betrayer had given them a sign saying, the one I will kiss is the man, seize him and lead him away under guard. And of course, even the betrayer's sign that he came up with is just dripping with irony. Of course, sharing a, 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 uh, a kiss with somebody else that you know was normal in that particular culture. You did that with close companions of the, of the same gender, so for a man to do that with another man was normal if they are a close companion. It's a sign of affection. He chooses a kiss. And while it was normal in that culture for a man to greet another man with a kiss, um, we see that it's even encouraged throughout the New Testament. In fact, in 1 Peter 5, it's even referred to as a kiss of love. So this tactic, this choice of Judas to, to, to decide to use a kiss as his method of identification is so conspicuously shameless, it's like he's flaunting it. It's like he's saying that he has, that he's the mastermind of the perfect crime and that he's got this entire thing dialed in. Like Pharaoh of the Old Testament, he may have been a tool of the adversary, but make no mistake, just like Pharaoh, he was doing exactly what he wanted to do. And as if the plan was not wicked enough, the betrayer in its execution, you know, basically says, watch this. He does just as he planned to do by approaching Jesus without delay. He acknowledges him with a term of authority. He acknowledges Jesus' authority by calling him rabbi and then delivers the kiss. In a, and in a matter of seconds, the desire that had given that had uh, the desire that began as a temptation gives birth to sin and the die is cast. This is the last mention by Mark of the betrayer in his gospel. We're not going to see him again. We're not going to hear about him again. And the crowd takes it from here. We see that in verse 46, that crowd uh, lays hands on him. They laid hands on him and seized him. And it's evident that the betrayer, the crowd, the, the corrupt religious leaders all assumed that Jesus and his followers were going to put up a fight. That's why they took up arms to defend themselves, because they assumed that that's what was going to take place. We don't know how many people actually make up this crowd. It's, it's, it's of some interest that there are commentators that like to use numbers associated with uh, Roman legions to kind of to figure out, okay, how many people were there probably there. But I think that that's, that's probably not applicable because these aren't Romans. I think we have several indicators that, sh that show that these are not Rom uh, Romans, but exclusively uh, Jew uh, Jews at this point. They're probably temple guards. The, the Jewish leaders or the Jewish religious authorities were the ones 
that actually commissioned these guys. They have their own militia of sorts. In fact, in several places in the book of Acts, you'll read about the captain of the guard or the captain of the temple. So it makes sense that the temple guard would be the ones that are being dispatched by the chief priests and the scribes and the elders. But regardless, you know, they approach him. They plan to seize him. And, and apparently one of the disciples that's in, uh, there with Jesus also assumes that there's going to be, that the appropriate response is to fight. He pulls out a sword, ends up cutting off the ear of the servant of the high priest, now, it's not, it's not in Mark's gospel, but from John's gospel, we know that that was the, the apostle Peter that struck him. And I know I've thought before as well, okay, what, what good is it to cut off the ear of a slave or a servant? Like, what, what did you really accomplish by that? But actually, now that we recognize that this is probably the temple guard and that these people were commissioned by the religious leaders... This, this isn't so much a slave as a servant of the high priest and actually may have carried some authority with him. So he may have been there in the lead, there to direct some of the crowd. And so Peter, in response, then gets a little worked up and takes off the ear of this servant. And Peter's lashing out at somebody in a leadership role. So here we have this scene. We have betrayal. We have chaos. We have violence that are all at play when the spotlight then finally turns back to Jesus. And we see right here in verses 48 and 49 what his response was. And Jesus said to them, Have you come out as against a robber with swords and clubs to capture me? Day after day I was with you in the temple teaching, and you did not seize me. But let the scripture be fulfilled. More evidence that, the, that this is the temple guard that came because he's even making note of the fact that day after day they, he was there with them. So obviously it would be the temple guard that's right there on the temple grounds. And so he's saying, I was right there. I was on the temple grounds. I was right there with you. And none of you took me into custody at that time. There's no need to be treating me like a criminal. There's no need to be coming with all of this, uh, with all of this armament and to take me into custody. But Jesus knew the reason that he was in the Garden of Gethsemane. Jesus knew why the betrayer was there. He knew why the crowd had come. He knew the time was fulfilled and that the kingdom of God was at hand. After being told no, that this hour may not pass by the Father, and he had already said, it is enough, let us be going. In the parallel account in, in, uh, in Luke, it says, when I was with you day after day in the temple, you did not lay, lay hands on me, but this is your hour and the power of darkness. So there's additional commentary there that Jesus is even noting the fact that this is the hour of the betrayer and the hour of the power of darkness. This is all under the auspices of what Jesus had already said in his earlier prayer, not my will but your will be done. When he asked for that hour to pass, and the Father says no, and Jesus says, it is enough, let us be going, it was to this that he was submitting. He was submitting to the fact that as a man, this was the hour of the power of darkness. 
And in, that, and in that case, there is only one appropriate response. Let the scriptures be fulfilled. Let the scriptures be fulfilled. In the face of categorical injustice. This is an injustice from hell itself. Jesus didn't call for a revolution. Jesus didn't kindle a rebellion. Instead, he was willing to be numbered among the transgressors because it brought glory to God. When he said, let the scriptures be fulfilled, what scripture is he talking about? What, what's the chapter? What's the book? Where's the verse? When he says, let the scriptures be fulfilled. I would suggest that it is the totality of the Hebrew canon. It is the entirety of the Old Testament that he was referring to. It is the promise that was made in Genesis 3.15. He is engaged in fulfilling the ultimate purpose of his mission right here. He is participating in the fulfillment of the covenant of grace. The promise made in Genesis 3.15 resulted in all of these subsequent covenants that were always pointing forward to a bigger and a better covenant. And in each of those covenants that God made with a man, with men, we failed to keep it. Those men failed to keep it, but they always pointed to the one covenant that could not be stopped. And so here we see all of this rich irony taking place where it is the hour of the power of darkness, and yet at that very same moment, this is the beginning of the fulfillment of the ultimate covenant that God has made to see to it that he will save his people. When the evil one and the betrayer and the corrupt religious leaders and the power of darkness had their hour, they just played right into the hand of our sovereign God. Now, unfortunately, Jesus' disciples didn't have the same perspective. They weren't looking at everything that was going on with the same eyes that he had. And even despite his uh, rather overzealous initial response, that being Peter and all the rest of them, skedaddle. They flee. They abandoned Jesus. And it's, it's difficult to, to read, but uh, a few verses earlier, remember during the Passover, it says, you know, here Jesus in reenacting the Passover, this very sacrifice of the lamb for sins, they all drank. And then when they were warned about falling away, they all emphatically denied it and pledged their allegiance to Jesus. And now that they're face to face with real persecution, they all fled and left, they all left him and fled. The last two verses are about this young man, honestly, are kind of curious. There's quite a bit of speculation, I can tell you. And Mark is the only gospel that records it here in verses 51 and 52. I, I, I don't think this 
the details and of everything are exactly clear, but one point is absolutely driven home, which is that Jesus is utterly forsaken by all followers of every variety, whether it was his apostles right there that should have known better or anyone else on the periphery that also fled. Here are some things that, in closing, I just would like you to consider. First of all, we love to compare ourselves to the villains, right? That's the great American escape from religious conviction. At least I'm not Hitler. At least I'm not Stalin. At least I'm not Nero. At least I'm not Judas. While it's true, you are not as bad as you could be, it's also true that you do not have the inherent goodness, you have not performed enough good works to keep you from being held accountable on Judgment Day. We know that God is superintending history. We can look at what Judas did and go, wow, in this greatest betrayal that took place comes the absolute greatest good. God's sovereign hand over history and the way that he can make use, bring glory to himself through man's worst possible actions is inexplicable. But no one that performs those evil actions gets any kind of credit for doing that. No one, if a man says, that he intends to kill his wife and then in the middle of executing the plan happens to stop a bank robbery unwittingly. He's not hailed as, as doing something heroic, of course. God gets all the credit for that. In fact, to that point as well in Mark 14 verses 17 to 21, it says, And when it was evening, he came with the twelve, and as they were reclining at table and eating, Jesus said, Truly I say to you, one of you will betray me, one who is eating with me. They began to be sorrowful and say to him one after another, Is it I? He said to them, It is one of the twelve, one who is dipping bread into the dish with me. For the Son of Man goes as it is written of him. So you see that when it says, For the Son of Man goes as it is written of him, that means that it was declared that it would take place by the very word of God. The Holy Holy Spirit-inspired word of God has said that this is what is going to happen. It's been decreed. And yet, but woe to that man by whom the Son of Man is betrayed. So the bad news is that you get no credit for any so-called good deeds that are performed apart from being a Christian. But the good news is that there is no deed bad enough that his work on the cross could not pay for it. Between the two, between eternal judgment and untold, incalculable, eternal, unearned riches is the reliance on yourself and repentance and faith. Repentance for sin and faith in the work of Jesus. Without Christ, we're all the same receptive fuel bed that Judas was. We're one match away from being eternally judged. And yet, 
quicker than you can light a match and drop it in a receptive fuel bed. We can be saved from our sins if there is repentance of that sin and true faith in the work of the Son of God. Now, for my Christian brothers and sisters, I also want you to hear this. God is eternally just. He's not just socially just. Do you understand what I'm saying? He is eternally just. He's not just socially just or any other flavor of justice. Nothing is out of God's control. So the point is, no one is getting away with anything. And what that means to you is that you can stop carrying the burden. Be responsible to honor God with what he has put in front of you and don't be consumed with worldly injustices. Don't be overtaken by the injustices that are taking place at your work. Don't be utterly discouraged by the injustices that are even happening within your own family. Any kind of injury that you are sustaining, any kind of offense, and I'm talking about legitimate. I'm not diminishing the fact that this is real injury. This is real offense. No one is getting away with it. God is an eternally just God. Our God is not just the God of the ends. He is the God of the means. Even when the greatest injustice was perpetrated against the only truly innocent man to walk this earth, it was in perfect conjunction with the will of God. If you believe that, if you can read this account and hear about the, 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 the degree to which Judas, the betrayer, perpetrated this crime, initiated, planned it out entirely, and saw it through exquisitely to set it into motion with a kiss to the Savior. If you can look at that and be able to say, praise God, then that means you too have no right to say, I have been wronged, I'm going to be angry, and I'm going to hang on to that anger because I have been, an injustice has been done to me. Do you think God cannot do something with that injustice? Of course he can, and he is. He'll hold accountable when and how he chooses to do that. So the beautiful part is that then we can rest in that. We can say, along with Jesus, let the scriptures be fulfilled. Not my will, but your will be done. It doesn't mean that, just like in Jesus' case, you dodge what's taking place. It's going to happen. But to God be the glory with how he sees fit to play that out in our lives, just as great glory came from how it played out in the sacrifice of his son. None of it escapes God's notice, so trust in him. With Judas's actions, there's no question that the die was cast, but we're reminded of Proverbs 16, 13, which says, the lot is cast into the lap, but... It's every decision is from the Lord. Let's pray. Lord, we're grateful that you give us these reminders 
that there is injustice in this world. There's no question. There's injustice taking place right now on many levels. But Lord, you aren't behind the curve. You haven't forgotten. It doesn't escape your notice. You haven't fallen asleep. Lord, you are working out your justice as you see fit. And we know that one day you will bring ultimate and perfect justice. And Lord, the fact of the matter is our hearts really should be grateful that you do not execute immediate justice or we would have no hope. But as your children, we do have hope because that justice was meted out on your son. For those that have repented of their sins and placed their faith in your son, we know that the justice that was poured out on him covers every sin that we've committed. Thank you, Lord, for this reminder. Help us to trust in you. In Jesus' name, amen.